In the fall of 1941, the Russian countryside was on fire. The German army was marching across the Soviet Union at an alarming rate, and villagers were torching their own towns and farms to prevent them from being taken. The troops that were bound for Moscow were relentless, intent on reaching the Russian capital. But Joseph Stalin, the Soviet leader, wasn't about to surrender his city to Hitler. Stalin had a plan. If the German forces were to capture Moscow, the city's most prized buildings were rigged to blow. The Kremlin, the cathedrals, the fanciest hotels, and the Bolshoi Theater. The theater is as grand as you can imagine. Towering columns on the outside, all velvet and chandeliers on the inside. If Hitler made it to Moscow and wanted to celebrate his victory by going to a performance at the Bolshoi, the Russians were ready for him. They lined the orchestra pit of the theater with explosives, booby-trapping the building. And in an image I can't shake, ballerinas and circus performers were trained to dance on stage while holding grenades to kill whoever they could if they got the chance. Lev Nipper, a composer and a member of the Soviet secret police, he had a very specific assignment. If Moscow fell, if the Germans swept in, if he could get close enough, he was to kill Hitler. I'm Jade Simmons, and this is Decomposed. We bring you the stories that have shaped classical music. The heartbreaks, the betrayals, and the acts of sheer genius that changed everything. There are many dark inspirations at work in classical music. One of the darkest is war. For thousands of years, war has brought music. Bands playing as troops have marched, drummers and fifers right on the front lines. Music is used to rally spirits, build national pride, and to mourn the fallen. Some of the most powerful pieces come from composers reflecting on war, from Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture to Britain's War Requiem. In this episode, we dive into World War II, where music became a weapon for the Soviets as they fought the Germans, and sometimes as they fought themselves. There was Lev Nipper, the composer turned would-be assassin. He never had to fire that shot. Those ballerinas never pulled the grenade pins. That plan at the Bolshoi was never forced into action. But in another Soviet city... Also squarely in the path of the marching Germans, there was a composer who did harness his music in the darkest moments of war. This is the story of Dmitry Shostakovich and the Siege of Leningrad. Dmitry Shostakovich grew up in political chaos. 
He watched the fall of the last czar, the rise of communism, and the formation of the Soviet Union. He lived in St. Petersburg, Petrograd, and Leningrad, all without moving. The Russian city changed names and regimes around him. By the time he was 10, he was writing political music, like the funeral march for the victims of the revolution. And he only kept going from there. His first symphony debuted when he was 19. And it wasn't just played in Leningrad. It played in Chicago and Philadelphia, too, in the West. His early music is steeped in Russian pride. Choruses that praise Lenin, communist songs at the end of his symphonies. While he was birthing all this music, millions of Soviets were dying. The 1930s are a brutal era in Russian history. Joseph Stalin turned the country's communist dreams into a nightmare. Authorities terrorized the countryside. They seized farms and factories. They forced people off their land and took control of everything. Thousands were killed in the conflict. Millions more were left to starve. It's impossible to know if he understood what was happening outside Leningrad while he was composing these early works. The press was controlled by the state, and the atrocities in the countryside went largely unreported. But the terror was moving closer. As Shostakovich's fame grew... His music was played in Leningrad, in Moscow, in London, in Berlin. He wrote an opera, Lady Macbeth of the Siensk District, about a woman who has an affair and ultimately murders her father-in-law and her husband. The public loved it. The piece was performed for two years with shows around the world, and then... Well, then Stalin took a listen. Stalin had turned his attention from the peasants in the countryside to the people in the cities, political rivals, clergy members, but also artists and intellectuals. They were his new threat, voices that could speak louder than his. He wanted them under control. People began disappearing. Sometimes they were arrested. Sometimes they were shot. Sometimes they were just gone. This was the Great Terror. One day in 1936, Shostakovich received a phone call. He was in Moscow on tour. Lady Macbeth was still playing in the city. But that day, the call said, Stalin was coming to the opera. You should be there too, Shostakovich was told. At the Bolshoi Theater, that grand, ornate theater in Moscow, Stalin sat in a private box. 
He had a bowl of hard-boiled eggs beside him for an intermission snack. Shostakovich sat in the audience, terrified. All he could do was glance up at the box, looking for any sign of a reaction. Was Stalin smiling? Was he frowning? Did he hate it? Was he pleased? And then it happened. The Soviet leader stood up. His men followed suit. And they walked out before the opera finished. Two days later, an anonymous review appeared in the Pravda paper. It denounced Lady Macbeth as muddle instead of music. It was coarse, primitive, and vulgar. It said the show tickles the perverted taste of the bourgeois. If you need a further threat, it said Shostakovich's music was a game of clever ingenuity that may end very badly. Shostakovich and his music were in the country's crosshairs now. It was a time when a wrong note could turn you into an enemy of the state. Lady Macbeth was pulled from performance. Shostakovich was denounced not just by politicians, but by his fellow composers. People turned on him, whether out of loyalty to Stalin or to save themselves, we don't know. The secret police began tapping his phone calls. The borders were closed. He couldn't have run if he wanted to. Shostakovich holed up in his hometown of Leningrad, nervous for his future and for his family. He was convinced the police would come for him. As they had come for his friends and fellow artists, he started sleeping on the landing of his apartment building because he didn't want to wake his wife and daughter when it happened. It was Shostakovich's fame that likely both made him a target in all this and spared him. Shostakovich's international celebrity made him a threat to Stalin. But if Shostakovich were to disappear, Stalin knew there would be questions from abroad. Under all this strain, Shostakovich was still writing. He composed a fourth, fifth, and sixth symphony while the country tore itself apart in fear. His fourth symphony went unperformed for decades, but the fifth and sixth premiered to applause and praise. Shostakovich reached an uneasy state of existence, an artist treading carefully under a brutal regime. Follow the rules. Do what you're told. On the surface, anyway. This reality that seemed unbearable and cruel, it's horrible to say, but it's only going to get worse. Stalin had terrified his own country and caused the death of millions. But Hitler, rising in power, was now preparing to wipe the Russians off the map completely. Dmitry Shostakovich would write a piece of music, his seventh symphony that told the world, we're still here. After the break, a musical score so provocative it was smuggled from continent to continent to escape the Germans. (laughs) 
Hi, I'm New York Times food columnist and cookbook author Melissa Clark, and I'm here to tell you about my new podcast, Weeknight Kitchen. It takes on one of the biggest dilemmas for busy people. What are we going to eat for dinner? In each episode, you'll be with me in my kitchen as I work through one fantastic recipe to help you get through the week. And I hope I'll share helpful advice along the way. It's a cooking show for beginners, seasoned cooks, and everyone in between. You can get Weeknight Kitchen free at weeknightkitchen.org. I'm Jade Simmons, and this is Decomposed. As World War II ensnared Europe, Stalin's spies, the British, the Americans, all tried to tell him that Hitler was going to attack the Soviet Union. But Stalin ignored warning after warning. Those German troops gathering at the border? Just a training exercise. Those low-flying German planes taking pictures of Soviet military bases? That's just young pilots. They're confused. Stalin bought every excuse until the invasion began. One arm of the German troops moved quickly toward Leningrad. As thousands of people fled, Shostakovich stayed. He wanted to enlist to fight in the Red Army, but he couldn't bad eyesight. So he volunteered with the firefighting brigade instead. He was assigned to watch the city from the rooftops, to extinguish bombs as they fell. In this uproar, as the Germans barreled toward them, he began writing his seventh symphony. first movement, it imagines a coming invasion. There's a march that repeats and repeats, growing more forceful. You can hear the darkness approaching. While writing this, Shostakovich told his wife, Nina, that he was reluctant to leave Leningrad. Leaving might interrupt his work. So I would have killed him myself if I were her. But Nina didn't. She convinced him the children's safety had to come before the music. By that point, though, there was no way out. The train lines had been severed. They were completely surrounded. The siege of Leningrad had begun. The Germans orchestrated the siege as a horrible game of numbers. They didn't want to waste manpower, tanks, and ammunition on gutting the city and all of its residents. There were 2.5 million people in Leningrad and almost zero ways in for food or supplies. All the Germans had to do was tighten their grasp and hold. They planned to starve the city into nothing but bones. They didn't want them to surrender. They wanted the city erased. The food shortages in Leningrad began immediately. The city's emergency rations were destroyed in the bombings. Tons and tons of lard, grain and sugar burning in a thick smoke you could see and smell across the city. 
The bombings came every day on a strict schedule, like morbid clockwork. The building across from the Shostakovich's home was destroyed. They were left to look at the charred, empty husk. In all this, Shostakovich kept writing. He began the second movement. When you listen, it has the feeling of forced fun, gritting your teeth through the marching. When you look at his sheet music from this time, there are notations in the margins. VT. It stands for Vazdushnaya Triavoga. That's Russian for air raid alarm. Every time he was interrupted by the bombings, Shostakovich marked his spot with a VT. He would gather his papers and take them down into the shelter with his family. In all this doom, the bombings, the growing food lines, the shrinking supplies, Shostakovich became a symbol of hope for the city. He'd essentially been an enemy of the state just five years before, but now he was a hero. There was a photo of him in his firefighting uniform, overlooking the city like a mythic guardian. Suddenly, he was propaganda. The city's radio station asked him on to talk about this new symphony, to help boost morale. What he was doing was the ultimate act of defiance, to still be creating art when the Germans were threatening death. Shostakovich's voice went out on the radio waves across Leningrad. He said, An hour ago, I finished scoring the second movement of my latest large orchestral composition. Why am I telling you this? I'm telling you this so that the people of Leningrad listening to me will know that life goes on in our city. The Shostakovich family did not see the worst of the siege. The Communist Party arranged for them to be evacuated by plane to Moscow. Maybe they realized the composer was too valuable as a national symbol to lose in the starving city. Shostakovich and his family were the lone passengers on that evacuation flight, tucked between crates as the plane took off under cover of night. Shostakovich didn't really want to leave. He wanted to take his wife and children out of danger, sure. Then he wanted to return. I'm pretty sure no one was going to let that happen. But the family found that Moscow wasn't safe either. Just after they landed, the Germans attacked the Soviet capital, and again the family was forced to flee. Gathering up the luggage and the children in the draft of the Seventh Symphony, Shostakovich and his wife rushed to a packed train station. There was a car reserved for artists, and everyone packed onto it. Composers and dancers and poets all squeezed way beyond capacity. In the panic and the struggle, the score, which had been wrapped up in blankets, went missing. It seemed months of work might be lost. But four days in, there was a flash of good news. The score had been found in a puddle on the bathroom floor. Shostakovich finished writing the Seventh Symphony while waiting to see the fate of his city. He was haunted by the idea of what was happening in Leningrad, thinking about everyone who was left behind. He didn't know the details, but we do now. And it's horrifying to read all these years later. 
The city was out of food. People were baking bread from sawdust and eating lipstick when nothing else was left. The winter cold was making it worse, too. There was no electricity, no firewood deliveries. People were freezing to death. Bodies were piling up in the streets. Those who were still alive, they looked like corpses. The Germans were waiting them out. People in Leningrad turned to art to soothe their misery. The library stayed open. So did the comedy theater. Even after one of the actors died of starvation right on the stage. The radio orchestra was reformed with the hope of playing music for the city. But what to play? A request was made. Get us Shostakovich's Seventh Symphony. Shostakovich's Seventh Symphony premiered more than a thousand miles away from Leningrad, in Kubaishev, in March of 1942. The composer was pale and nervous that day, a total wreck. He was telling friends to stay away, not to come to the performance. The symphony stretched to almost 80 minutes, and it was a triumph. The composer wrote in the Pravda paper, We are battling for our culture, for science, for art, for everything we have created and built. I dedicate my Seventh Symphony to our struggle with fascism, to our coming victory, and to my native city, Leningrad. But how could they get the score to Leningrad, to a city under siege? There were other cities clamoring for the score, too. The world wanted to hear it. The Soviet government photographed all 2,750 pages of music and reduced it onto strips of microfilm that stretched 100 feet long. The score headed for New York City. This score had a journey. This feels like it's straight out of an Indiana Jones movie. The microfilm with the score was stashed in a wooden box and flown from the Soviet Union to Iran. It was driven from Iran to Egypt, where it was flown to Brazil. In Brazil, it was passed off to the U.S. Navy. The Navy managed to get it north to Washington, D.C. and the State Department. The State Department then gave it to an agent of the Amrus Music Corporation, who promptly went to lunch and almost threw the whole thing out with his tray. I'm serious. After Iran and Egypt and Brazil and the Navy and the State Department and all that, this guy almost lost the microfilm when a busboy cleared it off his table. But he did manage to save it, and he took it up to New York City, where the NBC Radio Orchestra performed it after only four rehearsals. The Seventh Symphony was broadcast across the United States in July of 1942. Shostakovich was heard from coast to coast. And it wasn't just played once. The Seventh Symphony was performed more than 50 times across the U.S. that year. Shostakovich's face was on the cover of Time magazine. For a moment, for the people close to it, the music made Russia's fight feel 
like America's fight. A conductor in Cleveland said the symphony captured victory over barbarism. That Leningrad symphony that stirred the Americans, it still had to be played in Leningrad. The score was flown into the city by plane, and when it arrived, the conductor saw it and his heart sank. It was so dense, so long, it seemed impossible to play. The Seventh Symphony is designed to be played by an orchestra of over a hundred musicians. Fifteen showed up for the first rehearsal. They were almost too weak to play, but they were willing to try. The conductor had to pull musicians from the Red Army to boost their numbers. It took months to prepare. Three members of the orchestra died while waiting to play the Seventh Symphony. But finally, the premiere was set for August 9th. They knew that the venue would be a target, that the Germans would strike at any act of defiance. So the Red Army struck first. The day of the concert, they dropped 3,000 shells on the German army to distract them. And at Grand Philharmonia Hall in Leningrad, the musicians played on. The conductor stood in front of the orchestra, so thin that his formal tailcoat hung off him. And he urged his musicians through the symphony, through each movement, to the end. The Seventh Symphony does not have an ending of pure triumph. There's still darkness there. You can hear it. But it must have, in that moment, felt so powerful to be making all that music. Music that filled the hall. Music that was being broadcast through the city by loudspeakers. They blared the symphony across the landmines and the barbed wire that ringed the city. They aimed the music right at the Germans to be sure that they could hear it hunkered down in their trenches, making sure they would remember the Symphony of Leningrad. story does not have a pure, triumphant ending. The music did not magically stall tanks or melt machine guns. The siege continued for another year and a half. In all, it lasted 872 days. Over a million people died in the city of Leningrad. The Germans surrendered in 1945. Across the Soviet Union and Europe, the toll of World War II added millions and millions more to the dead. Stalin, he stayed in power. 
And Shostakovich did not stay a Soviet hero. Maybe it was because of Shostakovich's huge profile in the West. Or maybe it was because Stalin thought he had too much influence at home. But the state quickly turned against the composer once again. His music was deemed anti-people. Shostakovich was fired from his teaching position. He was accused of being an American spy. His music was banned. How does this happen to a national hero? There are many questions about Shostakovich. It's the trouble with a lot of Soviet history. Records were burned, or they were sanitized, or they were written after the fact by the state. Shostakovich has a memoir, but scholars don't even think he wrote it. And then there's his music. There are almost never clear answers on what a piece of music really means, unless a composer tells you directly. And with Shostakovich, his work can be read a lot of ways. That opening to the Seventh Symphony, the first movement, the invasion theme, If you're listening to it, thinking about World War II, it's Hitler you hear marching in. But if you're a Russian living in fear of prison camps, it could be Stalin and his secret police finally coming for you. Shostakovich's work can be read as praise of the state and as critique. Over the course of his career, he was celebrated and denounced. When Stalin died in 1953, his iron grip on the country was finally released. A decade after that, Shostakovich went to watch a performance of his Seventh Symphony. The group featured 16 musicians from that original group in Leningrad who had played the work while facing starvation, death, and an invading army. They had survived the siege, and they came together to play it again in front of the composer, The original conductor from that night was there, too. The man whose coattails had hung off of him like a skeleton while he led the performance. He wrote about the night later, about how they played the Leningrad Symphony for Shostakovich himself. The city now lives a peaceful life, the conductor said. But no one has the right to forget the past. For a complete listing of the music you heard in this episode, go to decomposedshow.org. That's decomposedshow.org for more about the music you heard this episode. You'll also see our reading list there. For this episode, we definitely recommend Symphony for the City of the Dead by M.T. Anderson and Shostakovich and Stalin by Solomon Volkov. Find more titles at decomposedshow.org. You can find Decomposed on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Decomposed Show. 
That's at Decomposed Show. Tell us your favorite composer and who we should cover next. Decomposed is hosted by me, Jade Simmons. It's produced by Tracy Mumford and Ryan Lohr. Chris Julin is our editor. This episode was written by Tracy Mumford with me. Sound design by Aaron Cohen. Engineering by Corey Schreppel. Thanks to Elizabeth Lundy, our researcher, and Ryan Katz, our fact checker. The interim director of podcasts for APM is Lauren D. Decomposed is made possible by Inspired by You, NPR's capital campaign, and the generosity of Ruth and John Huss. Before you go, let's talk about how these stories get told. Decomposed is a public radio podcast that is supported by your donations. This show and shows like it only happen with your support. Donate today to hear more shows like this from APM Podcast. Give today at decomposedshow.org slash donate. <laughs>